Thanks, Nay. Welcome, everyone. Add my welcome to James's. And particularly if you're new or visiting, great to have you along. If we haven't met, I'm Lachlan. I'm on the staff team here at NCA, and I particularly look after this congregation. Well, what does it look like when you're confident of an outcome? Uh, you know, I don't quite mean, you know, do you uh, strut around with your shoulders back and chest out and, you know, uh, whatever mannerisms are kind of your victory confident mannerisms, but how does it affect your behaviour and performance? I'm sure we've all witnessed sports games where, you know, one side gets momentum and it gets to the point where their victory is assured, but it just seems to inspire them to keep going instead of just winning you know, they absolutely destroy the opposition. They just keep, you know, scoring again and again and again. And conversely, the losing team just seems to fumble and make more and more mistakes. Uh, knowing the outcome and the confidence that it can give you, it, it can change things. It can really give you the confidence to keep going. And as we get to uh, today's final section here of Jesus teaching his disciples uh, in this chunk of John's Gospel, Jesus wants his disciples to understand the end and to live in light of it. Jesus wants his disciples to know that they can have confidence and assurance that comes from an assured victory. Uh, now, over the back half of the year, we've been working our way through John's biography of Jesus, and over the last few weeks, we've zoomed into this farewell discourse. Uh, on the night before he was crucified, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about what was about to happen in just a few hours, and then what life was going to look like after he was gone. Recently, we've just, over the last couple of weeks, seen that Jesus has been teaching about his disciples of the need to be fruitful, to live lives that are shaped by listening to him and obeying him, and it would be seen in their love for one another and continuing to point people to Jesus, even in the midst of hostility. And as he concludes his time of teaching the disciples, he wants them to understand the confidence that they can have, to live in light of the end, because the victory he is about to achieve is going to transform how they understand what's going to happen and it's going to be the foundation of the rest of their lives and give them confidence to live as his disciples, even in an uncertain world. Uh, so we're going to look at the passage in a few parts. We're going to see the disciples' confusion, grief to joy, complete joy, living in two worlds, and then we'll think a little bit about what Jesus' teaching here means for us today. So we'll pick up in verse 16. Uh, the disciples are still confused. Verse 16, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. And, you know, like I said, we're, we're at the end of the farewell discourse here, at the end of these chapters that we've been unpacking over the last few weeks, and Jesus has been teaching his disciples, answering their questions, getting them ready for what's about to happen, and they still don't get it. You can just sense their confusion there with that repetition of a little while. A little while you won't see me. Then after a little while you will see me. What do you mean by a little while you won't see me? And then a little while, a little while, a little You can just sense the confusion that the disciples have there. They still don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They don't understand that Jesus, God's rescuing king, must die to bring God's plans to save the world and give people eternal life to their conclusion. They just don't get it. But in some ways, that's not that surprising. It kind of fits with what we've heard. It doesn't kind of. It fits with what we've seen Jesus teaching last week, that it would only be after he leaves and God sends his spirit that they would finally understand what Jesus has been teaching them. 
The disciples' confusion here, it fits with what Jesus has said to expect. Uh, Now, if you've joined us today or you're joining us online and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, it's worth noting that as Jesus keeps teaching, he draws attention to the resurrection and implicitly that Christianity, that following him, stands or falls on whether or not this happens. That's something that we can investigate. And it's not a big point in the passage, but just worth noting as we pass through that just here's that extra bit of evidence that a suffering and crucified Christ is a completely foreign idea, even to the disciples who have been closest to Jesus and who he's been teaching to expect it. For first century Jews to identify Jesus, the man who was crucified, not just as God's rescuing king, but as God in the flesh, well, it's going to take some substantial evidence to convince them. And you can see that on display here because even after everything Jesus has told them up to this point about his imminent death and what it will mean, they still don't get it. It is just still so foreign to them. But Jesus has his reasons. They might not understand it yet, but as they're about to face their own season of grief, he wants them to understand and live in light of his victory and resurrection uh, that will be achieved after his crucifixion. Have a look there at verse 19, from grief to joy. It's point two. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I mean when I said, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. In just a few hours, Jesus be tried, uh, captured, tried, and crucified. The disciples who followed Jesus, who trusted him, they will grieve his death. How could they not? He's the one that they pinned their hopes on to be God's king, the saviour of his people. And he's about to be cut down and strung up on a cross. But Jesus has a simple point for them to hold on to. The disciples who believed in him will weep and mourn, The world who opposed him will rejoice, but that situation won't last. The disciples' grief will turn to joy. Their grief will, in fact, it'll be like the pain a woman feels in labour that becomes joy with the baby's arrival. Terrible to experience, yes, but with an end point, resulting in a joy that far outweighs the anguish. And notice the grief that the disciples experience It's not going to be replaced with joy. It will turn into joy, a joy that can't be taken away as it becomes clear exactly what Jesus' death has achieved because Jesus won't stay dead. When they see him again in a little while, when he's raised from the dead, it will be the proof of his victory that he has won at the cross over sin and death and the life that they can have in his name as they continue to live as his people in relationship with God. In fact, that's what he goes on to explain with them, uh, explain to them. Once he is raised, they will be able to have complete joy. Uh, Verse 23, our next point, complete joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. I mean, is that, is that really right? I mean, does Jesus really guarantee whatever we ask and complete joy? 
And it just sounds like the sort of thing, you know, a dodgy car salesman might say in a, an advertisement, you know, anything, anything, complete joy, just whatever it will take to make the sale. And what do you do with it? I mean, on the one hand, it seems pretty clear. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name or ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Jesus is, is pretty clear, but I don't know, our experience often suggests that there's something amiss here. Either Jesus is wrong, which kind of undermines the trust that we can have in anything he says. And, you know, that's usually the broad reasoning someone uses when they want to do a quick experiment to prove that the Bible is wrong. You know, I wonder if you've had anyone make that claim. You know, Jesus says, anything you ask, you'll get it. Let me pray for it. Oh, it hasn't appeared. See, it's wrong. Do we kind of put it in that basket? Or, or, or do we sometimes think, oh, maybe the problem's just with me and a lack of faith? But when you look at the passage, there's actually no reason for us to make that conclusion. In fact, the promise seems to be grounded in what Jesus has done, not on whether or not the disciples have enough faith when they ask here. How do we make sense of what Jesus is offering? Well, a general rule for reading, I mean, just about anything, but particularly important when we're reading the Bible, is the context helps determine the content. The context helps determine the content. I mean, you can see that in action in a similar situation that many of us could experience today. I mean, many of us know the frustration of having a job to do but having insufficient resources to actually meet the objective. You know, to be given a purpose, to be put under pressure to achieve an, a goal, all the while having the resources that we need to achieve that goal denied to us, withheld. You know, it can be a frustrating, a disempowering, even a crushing experience. But imagine going from that job to a new job where the boss says to you, I'm so glad that you're on board. Whatever you need, ask, and I'll make sure you get it. I mean, we know that the context informs the content, what we understand her to mean. You know, I've employed you for a purpose, and I intend to help you fulfil that purpose. Whatever you need is informed by the purpose of the role. So what's the context that informs our understanding of what Jesus says here? Well, it turns out if we flip back a couple of paragraphs to chapter 15 that Foxy took us through a couple of weeks ago, we actually see Jesus has already explained these ideas. Uh, for example, chapter 15, verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Or again in verse 16 of chapter 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my, in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. See, Jesus has called his disciples to bear fruit, much fruit, fruit that will last, fruit that will bring glory to God, fruits that, fruit that is seen as they follow Jesus by carefully listening to and obeying his word, and it will be particularly seen in the love that they show for one another, and as we saw last week, their testimony to Jesus in a hostile world. Jesus really does mean the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name, but it's informed by the context of living as his disciples that God may be glorified. The context informs the content. But 
What about Jesus promising that their joy will be complete in verse 24 there of chapter 16? Well, the same passage that we just looked at in chapter 15 helps us again. The context informs the content. 15 verse 10, uh, verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. See, if you were doing a word association challenge, you know, where I say a word and you say the first word that pops into your head, you know, if if I said black, you might say white. If I said sun, you might say light. What words pop into your head if I say obedience? When I did it myself, you know, a burden, a task, constrained, I'd be very surprised if love and joy ever came up for most of us as the words that we associate with obedience. But in chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, we saw that continued enjoyment of Jesus' love turns in part on our obedience to Jesus. Just as Jesus obeyed the Father out of his love for the Father, uh, we are called to uh, love, obey Jesus out of our love for him. But it's not a, a burdensome obedience. It's a joyful obedience. Jesus wants his disciples to have the same joy in obeying him that he does when he obeys the Father. A complete joy. Not the fleeting joy that we might usually think of if we happened to use the word in everyday discussion. It tends to happen more around Christmas. But a joy that lasts. A joy that is grounded in the experience of the love of God in Jesus. The love for which we were created. A mutual love that is seen in our obedience. Joy is related to obedience because obedience is an outworking of love. And it's an obedience that willingly faces death to self-interest as we love one another, completing our joy as we love God and he loves us. You see, in chapter 15, Jesus set out a higher standard for his obedience to the Father as what the disciples would be aiming for. And here, in chapter 16, in the passage we're looking at today, he tells the disciples again, It's just a little bit longer and you will understand the deep joy that I'm about to win for you and God will help you live lives of joyful obedience that's grounded in love and that you were uh, the love that you were made for. That's what he's getting at there. And it's what he underlines again in verse 25 to 27. After his resurrection, that's when the disciples will understand. Their confusion will be dealt with and they'll enter a loving relationship with God who's generously going to give them everything that they need, everything that they need to fulfil the purpose he has for them. Jesus has given them a glimpse of the end that he is about to achieve. And it's an incredible situation. It's an incredible situation about to be opened up for the disciples, and it is all possible because of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. It's all possible because of the end. That's what he says in verse 28. The end of his mission has arrived. He came from the Father and entered the world, and now he is leaving the world and going back to the Father. His mission is nearly complete. But the disciples still don't get it. 
Verse 29, our last point, living in two worlds. Then the disciples said, ah, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. The disciples still don't understand. Though they think that his promise to be speaking clearly seems to have begun rather than be something for after his death and resurrection, they've misunderstood that point. But they do seem to have a faith of sorts. At the very least, Jesus' ability to know what they were questioning before they asked him makes them think Yes, he is from God. But Jesus knows this isn't enough for them to stand the test of what's about to happen. In a few hours, they will be scattered and Jesus will be left alone, though the Father would be with him. But in the same breath that he tells them about their impending failure, he assures them once again of what he is about to win for them and what it will mean. Verse 33, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, despite their failure, he has come to bring them peace, peace with God so that they can have a loving relationship with God. But even then, they will continue to live in a world of trouble and distress. We've heard in chapter 15 and earlier in chapter 16, they will continue to live in a world that's hostile to Jesus and his followers on top of the challenges that anyone who lives in this fallen world faces. Sickness, disasters, wars, relationship breakdown, all of the problems. But amidst it all, Jesus' disciples can know he has overcome the world. Because as we've been seeing this morning, Jesus has let his disciples know he won't stay dead, but he'll be raised to life and raised to rule at God's right hand. Their grief will turn to joy and they will be able to enter into a relationship with God that's defined by his love and seen in their joyful obedience to Jesus. And God will help them to do that. And that offer stands for us today. We might be in a slightly different situation to the disciples in the passage. We don't have quite the same experience of grief at Jesus' death on the cross turning to joy a few days later that they did, for instance. But Jesus' words are still for us today. We know, in fact, that he was resurrected. We know that he was victorious. And so if he calls his disciples here to trust in his ultimate victory, how much more for us who know of the victory that he won through his death? And resurrection. And so, first off, you know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and not a follower of Jesus, I think one of the things that Jesus' words here do is to challenge us, uh, to challenge you to consider, well, what is it that you live for and compare it to what Jesus offers? Can what you build your life on really compare with what Jesus offers? Or is it something that, while good, maybe like family, is, is still ultimately fragile construction material for building our lives on. You know, can what you are living for actually offer the guarantee of peace in a troubled world? 
you might like to do that comparison. But second, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus' final words before he prays offer us great comfort to hold on to because sooner or later, all of us will fail him. You, in fact, might be here this morning feeling the guilt and the shame of having walked away from Jesus, having failed to love him, having shown him even hatred by ignoring his commands for his followers. Despite their boldness and assertions that they believed in Jesus, Jesus was quick to point out to his disciples they would abandon him. And just like the disciples would abandon him when the pressure was too much, we too will fail to wholeheartedly live for Jesus. But in the same breath that he points out their impending failure, he assures them of his love for them. That even though he knows what is about to happen, he has come that they might have peace. Peace in him. And it's a peace that only he can give. When we fail and when we feel guilty or ashamed, take heart that Jesus knows and that his love for you is so deep that he continues to call you to seek peace in him and to know that you have it in him. Whatever shortcomings you may have, Jesus loves you. But he also draws out a challenge that his disciples, even today, will continue to face. Because we live in two spheres that are in constant conflict, the world and being in Jesus. But just as we live in the world, as we live in the world, Jesus tells us to remember he has overcome it. We know he was victorious because he was raised back to life. And so Jesus calls us to live in the world in light of his victory. So when you face opposition from the world, remember, Jesus and his victory changes the way we see that opposition. Ultimately, it's going to be pointless. It's going to be poor and beggarly, however visceral it might feel now. But it's also worth thinking about how Jesus' victory impacts on prayer and purpose. See, over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus call his disciples to pray. In fact, five times over the last few weeks, he has asked his disciples to pray and ask for whatever that they might receive it. Five times. Jesus wants his disciples to pray, and he wants them to pray with a purpose. That the things they care most about, the things they're bringing to God and asking for, uh, for him to give them, would centre around God being glorified through Jesus as they live as his disciples, being joyfully obedient as they love God and love each other. He wants his disciples to pray with a purpose. And so if you were to draw a Venn diagram, you know, the diagram where there's kind of two circles from different categories that show how much overlap there is, if you were to draw a Venn diagram of what Jesus urges his disciples to pray for, and what you've prayed for over the last month while we've been looking at these passages, how much overlap would there be? What do our prayers reveal about what we really desire? Are our prayers shaped by the purpose that Jesus has for us? And are they marked with a confidence that he will answer them because he has been victorious? Or are they actually shaped by something else? 
let me push a little bit further. As we teach our children to pray, do we teach them to pray in light of Jesus' promises and purposes and victory? Or are we subtly encouraging them to see this world and its transitory troubles as the thing that dominates reality? Now, I'm not having a go at anyone for praying about work or health or housing or family or friends. They are all good and right things to pray for. And they fit perfectly well under Jesus telling his disciples to ask for whatever. They're good and right things to pray about. But how might your prayers for these things be impacted in light of Jesus' purposes for us as his people? How might you pray about those differently, even as you're praying about sickness, at troubles, at work, of housing issues? How might you pray differently if your prayers were shaped by a desire to see God glorified through Jesus as you seek to lovingly and joyfully obey him in those situations. If it's something that you are aware of struggling with, well, I think we all struggle with it because while we are followers of Jesus and in him, we also live in the world and the joys and challenges of the world well, they can feel so much more, more real, more pressing, more dominant as the days roll by. But Jesus calls his disciples to understand what his death and resurrection means and to live in light of it. That he has overcome the world, that we have victory in him and we have been given a glorious purpose. That our lives honour God and glorify him through Jesus as we seek to love each other amidst the troubles of this world. But it's just not our natural tendency. I mean, if it was, we wouldn't really need to ask God for help to do it. But we do. And Jesus wouldn't keep tell, need to keep telling us, uh, wouldn't need to tell us to keep viewing things in light of the end to keep the various perspective, uh, problems we face in the world in perspective. It's not our natural tendency. And so Jesus urges us to remember his victory amidst the anxieties and the troubles we face to remember that he has won. He knows us and he loves us and he has a glorious purpose for us. And so he tells us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus calls us as his disciples to view the world in light of his victory and to live that out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son and we thank you that on the cross... Uh, he has paid for our sin, and through his resurrection, we know he is victorious. Thank you for the life that we have in his name. We pray that you would help us to so love him that we would be seeking to be joyfully obedient and honour and glorify you with our whole lives, that we would bring to you all situations and problems and troubles that we face and seek to live as your disciples as we face them. Thank you that you promised to give us whatever we need to achieve the purpose you have for us. Help us to remember this purpose and to remember to view the world in light of the victory we have in Jesus, knowing the outcome and living in light of it. Amen. We're about to stand and sing no other name.